Hello, everybody. You see, it's ordinary. I'm really doing participatory audience. That's really great. Um, you know, when I was a kid, like a young assistant professor, uh, I remember listening to people standing up here and, and introducing speakers. And they did something strange. They said, I'd like to introduce you to my friend. And I often wondered how it was that scientists had friends, you know, from places like Alabama. I mean, I have friends in this audience, right? But how do you get a friend from Alabama? And I learned over the years that the way you get friends in science is you go to like Gordon conferences, you go to these small meetings, not AACR meetings with 20,000 people, you go to these small meetings and you drink a lot of beer together. So Will is a friend, we've drunk a lot of beer together. <laughs> I thought I should get that conflict of interest out of the way to start with. <laughs> so for those listening on the uh, outside, listen to this. I apologize if you're hearing this. Um, no, I'm proud, really glad to be able to introduce uh, Will today. Uh, he graduated with a PhD from, oh, where are my notes? From Scripps. He did a postdoc with Maurizio Pelecchia. At Sanford Burnham, and in about uh, 2012, he moved to Alabama as a assistant professor at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. And I've even been down there and visited him. Um, and uh, uh, he's going to talk today about his work on MCO one, not surprisingly. Uh, but I have to do the other other stuff, which is all formal, telling you that he has a financial interest in a company called Reliant Glycosciences, but that actually has nothing to do with the talk he's talking about today. And Alan Hartford's gone over his slides and said it has nothing to do with his talk today. Uh, he reports he does not intend to discuss off-label investigational use of a product or device. He attests he is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Um, and if anybody wants CME credits, uh, the CME code will be displayed outside the auditorium on your exit. And with that, Will, thank you for coming to visit. Let me make sure this is all on. Can everybody hear me? Yes. Excellent. So um, I don't like to stand behind the podium. I hope that's okay. So today my talk, MCL1 Regulation and Chemotherapy Resistance, is um, kind of goes after the focus, uh, the main basic research focus of my lab, which is apoptosis. Because we're interested in how to make better and novel cancer therapeutics. Um, and the gold standard for cancer therapeutics is really the ability to induce apoptosis. And if you're talking about apoptosis, it started out, you were talking about looking at a cell. You were looking at a phenotypic death where the cell was going in, chromosomal, the chromosome was condensing, you saw membrane blebbing, and that was actually the foundation for some of the early um, chemotherapeutic uh, compounds was can they cause some type of cell death? But as we have gone forward in cancer drug discovery, and in our understanding of biochemistry, we started to come up with signaling pathways. And signaling pathways are really serving as the foundation of uh, where we're going forward with target um, therapeutic development. And so when we talk about apoptosis, it's really a response, and in this case, and what I'm going to talk about today is intrinsic apoptosis. It's the cell's response to stress. And this is germane to the subject of cancer chemotherapy because the goal of most chemotherapeutic agents thus far is to induce some type of stress or to exacerbate stress the cancer cell is already undergoing. And so when you induce stress, you get mitochondrial or membrane permeabilization, cytochrome C release, activation of caspases, and ultimately apoptosis. But I want to go into is really, as we have developed the field, you start to pull out these cell signaling pathways. You start to get the nuanced detail. And that's where we have to go forward in the next 10 years to really start making effective clinical compounds. And the area I'm looking, I'm interested in is what is regulating this step from stress, so there's a lot of different stressors that are induced, to mitochondrial outer membrane permeabilization. And this is dominated by a group of proteins, which I'm sure you've heard about if you've heard Alan talk, members of his group, which is the BCL2 family. And so the BCL2 family, let's get away from this 
streamlined, single-line approach to cell signaling because it actually is a huge disservice as we talk about drug discovery to think about it this way because in the cell, there's not a single line that everything follows through. There are compartments. There are surfaces. There are edges. And it's these edges that are controlling apoptosis. And the one we're really interested in is the edge of the mitochondria where two proteins back and backs reside. And when these proteins reside in a monomeric state, the cell's fine. When they oligomerize in some as yet unknown manner, they intercalate into the membrane and release and induce um, apoptosis. So it's important for the cell, when you're sitting here watching my talk, that this isn't occurring. Because otherwise, we'd all be in a lot of trouble. Um, and so what happens is, is we create a series of proteins, the anti-apoptotic family members, which actually bind to back and backs. And they bind and they sequester them in a monomeric state, either at the mitochondrial membrane or in the cytosol. Um, and these proteins, MCL1, BCL2, the namesake, there's other members, BCLXL, BFL1, these serve to hold the cell in a set of homeostatic um, kind of balance. But when we add chemotherapy or radiation, we induce DNA damage, we induce cell stress. This causes an upregulation or the third group of the BCL2 family. And these are the BH3-only proteins. And they're named as such because they have this BH3 helix, which we'll go into more detail, which goes in and binds to the anti-apoptotic members, MCL1, BCL2, and drives them to release back and backs. These proteins also can go in and directly bind to back and backs, and they go in and they drive oligomerization. How? Well, this BH3 motif that is at the core of the family is actually the single unit that regulates all of this interaction. And so we have about 32 proteins, and the one thing they share is a 30-amino 30 amino, 30 amino acid amphipathic alpha helix. Okay, And I want to stress this is a motif. It's not a domain. A lot of literature talks about this as a BH3 domain. It's not a domain because in MCL1, BCL2, back and backs, it's a single amphipathic alpha helix, it's part of a single domain in the protein. It's not a separate portion of the protein that's totally a, uh, another part, another tertiary structure. And so this helix binds in, and in back and backs, this helix flips out and binds over to the next back and backs. So it's the ability of MCL1 to bind to these helices, to BCL2 to bind to these helices, that regulates all apoptosis in our cell. So this seems like a pretty simple mechanism. And it is. It's very simple because in an amphipathic alpha helix, there's only six amino acids that actually drive this entire interaction. There's a, a conserved acidic residue, there's a conserved glycine, and then there are a few hydrophobic residues. And so from the discovery of the BCL2 family, from BCL2 itself, MCL1, and its control of apoptosis, to kind of the structural identity of these members, what came out is maybe we could inhibit this, okay? And Steve Fezzik started out at Abbott with this idea, and this was seminal. Right now we think of making a protein-protein inhibitor, and a number of you are doing this in your lab. But if you had started out back in 1995 and said, I'm going to make a small molecule inhibitor of a protein-protein interaction, you would have been laughed at. You write that in a grant, they would have said, you can't do it. The interface is way too large, because if we look at this interface, a drug is at best going to recapitulate two of those hydrophobic residues. You're never going to be able to put that drug in there and block this whole section of binding. Okay, And so Fezzik kind of took the leap and said, I don't think that's true. And I don't think that's true, and he had a couple of reasons. But the one reason he had was that the BH3-only proteins aren't, they're intrinsically unfolded. They don't sit there as a helix and bind in all at once. They actually go in, they have some helical character and solution. But part of them binds first, and the part that really drives that binding are these two hydrophobic pockets. And we, so we started out and made a series of studies looking at how can I replicate um, this interaction using fragment-based screening, and then built the first compound, ABT737. Um, and the beauty of this compound was it targeted three of the anti-apoptotic family members, BCL2, BCLW, and BCLXL. Okay, so this seemed like it was the magic bullet. They were going to be able to step in, stop apoptosis, 
be able to synergize with chemotherapy and cure cancer. Obviously, that hasn't happened as well as we thought. So, why? Why did we go forward? Why is it that we targeted BCLXL, BCL2? Well, BCL2 was initially identified as a protector of cell viability because of its upregulation in B-cell lymphomas. It was chromosomally translocated, so it was upregulated quite strongly, and it was easy to see. Subsequent structural and biochemical studies actually didn't look at BCL2. They first looked at BCLXL. So all of our drug discovery efforts targeted BCL2 and BCLXL, not because there was a foundation that these were the proteins to target, but because these were the proteins that we could easily manage. Okay? And as a trouble, as a result of this, ABT737, when it went in the clinic, it seemed to have some work, but it had problems because, for instance, we learned that if you inhibit BCLXL, you induce acute thrombocytopenia. Um, you've also seen to have resistance come up very fast. And so when I went from my graduate work, so I started out in Kurt's lab learning NMR structural biology, um, really getting trained as how to do protein structure in the, in the era of structural genomics, I went into my postdoc and wanted to get into drug discovery. And Maurizio was working, this was right after a number of these compounds were starting to go in the clinic, and he thought, we need to make a better BCLXL inhibitor. BCL2 is the wrong target. And he had chemists that were making a large variety of compounds. And so I had, when I walked into the lab, I realized I can't just do structural biology, I need to do something else. Because um, in human biology, most of the structures have been solved especially the size that NMR can handle. And so I started getting into tissue culture. How can I look at small molecule binding to proteins, and how can I use that to do structure-based uh, drug discovery? And what we said, what I had at my disposal was about 500 compounds, which had differential affinity to the anti-apoptotic BCL2 family members, and I had the ability to do Western blots. And I could use in vitro studies to look at how well these compounds bound, and then take them into cell lines that seem to have corresponding levels of different BCL2 expression. And what I found is the compound LD50s didn't match at all the Western blot data. And so I went back and I started looking through the literature. And there were about 200 papers that had spent a lot of time looking at which BCL2 family member to target. And what they showed was a lot of Western blots. And going to, when Alan came to Birmingham, he made a large uh, target of his talk was focused on Think about the underlying assumptions you're using when you start your research. And so the underlying assumption for 10 years of drug discovery was based on this protein's easy to handle, we know a lot about it, and if we do a bunch of Western blots and a whole lot of patient-derived samples, we get really nice BCL2 and BCLXL bands, and the MCL1 band is really bad. So obviously, we don't need to target MCL1. So as many of you who do Western blots know, if you compare different antibodies to the same protein, you can't really do a very good job at normalizing and expressing what kind of expression you have. But effectively, the basis for millions of dollars of drug discovery was on multiple Western blots of different proteins with different antibodies. Okay? So how do you get around that? Well, MCL1 Western antibodies were really bad. And so at the time, I started going in and looking at MCL1's turned over. It has a half-life of about 30 minutes, very differentially to BCL2 and BCLXL. So which of these is actually expressed the most? Maybe we can get a shoe into which uh, target to go after looking at expression. And so I did a qPCR screen of 68 human cancer cell lines looking at the expression of the whole anti-apoptotic BCL2 family. And I didn't use relative qPCR. I actually did a quantitative absolute value qPCR where I did dose response curves for each of these with the idea I wanted to know exactly how much of each of the anti-apoptotic members were there. Because the BCL2 family, it's not six or five or six independent kind of targets. The better way to think about the anti-apoptotic family members is as a sponge. And so if you make a drug that cuts off BCL2 or BCLXL, you're cutting off a certain amount of the sponge. But how much is left over is going to determine how much you're going to be able to respond. And so what we saw is in solid tumors, this is a series of breast cancer cell lines we looked at, the BCL2 expression is the black bar. And you probably can't see it because it's really not there. You compare this to a normal fibroblast, that expression in MCF7 is a thousand times stronger BCL2 regulation than in normal fibroblasts. <laughs> 
Okay, so if you do quantitative qPCR, these plots look totally different. This is a thousand times overexpression of ECL2, and that's about a 1.8x increase in MCL1. And the reason is, is MCL1 in a normal cell is so highly expressed already, you actually don't have a huge dynamic range. A doubling of MCL1 is a huge increase in the anti-apoptotic pool. And when we went back and looked at, so MCL1 in these cell lines in this tracks for lung, colon, CNS, CNS, prostate, renal cell lines, MCL1 makes up between 50 and 80% of the anti-apoptotic BCL2 family pool. And this started to make sense as to why ABT737 was having problems, because the cells were already primed to make more MCL1, and they were seeing that. And as we went back, we said, well, maybe MCL1's a high-value target to go after. Um, so if the previous drugs only targeted these three, if we start to pull in MCL1, maybe we'll have some effect. This was then quickly followed up by a um, large sequencing analysis, which showed that across multiple tumors, types, and patient samples, MCL1 was also upregulated. So... As we were, so it took us about two and a half years to get this data published because we started presenting it and people said, there's no way that's true. There's, there have been so many papers that have talked about BCL2, BCL, XL. You guys saying MCL1 is important. You've done something wrong. And so we spent a lot of time going to conferences, showing the data, showing here are all of our panel of drugs where we could show there is a dose LD50 correlation with MCL1 expression when they target MCL1 but not that same correlation with any of the other targets. When we finally got it out at that point, very quickly, studies were coming out saying MCL1 promotes tumor cell survival. It actually is a key regulator of chemotherapeutic sensitivity, both the antitubulin and cisplatin compounds. Um, and so we made the first pan-active drug, Sabutaclax, which binds to all six anti-apoptotic BCL2 family members. And what you saw was that it had much better... Um, activity across a panel of cell lines. So the LD50 of ABT737, you get good effect in the one lymphoma cell line in this panel, pretty much nothing else. Sabutaclax, you get a much more broad-based impact. Um, so if MCL1 is important, it seems to be important in chemosensitivity, it should synergize if we take our inhibitor, which is a very preliminary inhibitor. I'm not going to say this is a clinical candidate at this point, um, but we should be able to look and see synergy with standard chemotherapeutics. We did a docetaxel study, synergy study, in a prostate cancer um, line where we looked at in tissue culture how well the synergy happens. And what we saw, so this is an isobologram plot, where on the left-hand side you have sabutaclax LD50s. On the bottom you have docetaxel LD50. And so if you had a simple um, summation effect, you'd have all the points go on this dotted line. If you, what we saw was actually very strong synergy, where you could, when you add these two in combination, the LD50 drops well below. So you get a CI50 value of 0.153, or a CI90 of 0.8, or almost 0.8. What this says is we can reduce the dose of taxal dosing 90% with a moderate increase in our drug and get the same cell killing. And then we translated this into a mouse centigraph study. Okay, And so this set up as this idea that maybe MCL1 is actually a valid target. And so when I went and presented this data, it quickly became apparent that I was not going to be able to keep up with industry because they agreed, and which I was excited about. Um, and so what has come out since then is we have a very fast progression through uh, multiple companies to make MCL1-targeted inhibitors. And what the, what's coming out is, is these seem to be very potent, very effective compounds, and they're coming from multiple different uh, companies. And so when I went over to UAB, I realized that if I started making a MCL1 drug discovery lab, I was not going to get funded, and I was going to quickly lose my job. So all of my drug discovery efforts actually are on other targets. Um, but we kept this core because I still think MCL1 is really important. And while they're making inhibitors, what I've come to realize is we actually don't know what MCL1 does. Okay, so we think MCL1's key role is apoptosis regulation. And while that is true, we can knock out MCL1 and the cells are fine. Okay, 
but we see a lot of other effects. So what I wanted to do is start to shift from target how to target MCL1, because I'll leave that to people who have millions of dollars and don't have to report back to the NIH and don't have to publish every year, to how these inhibitors can best be positioned in the clinic. So I'm going to present two projects. The first one is a series of projects we've been looking at, which is actually how is MCL1 regulated? Because an interesting area of drug discovery that I've had the opportunity to work um, with through a couple of collaborations is how can you actually make inhibitors of mRNA and looking at post-transcriptional regulation of MCL1 and its impact on chemosensitivity. And the second project, which is new to, this will be the first time I present it, so hopefully this will go okay, is identifying novel MCL1 binding proteins and their impact on cell signaling. So MCL1 is... David and a number of you should be well aware of, um, is regulated in a lot of ways. It's regulated at its transcriptional level. There's some post-transcriptional regulation, a lot of post-translational regulation. But what's not really understood is how the microRNA, what is, what's regulating the mRNA? And what I learned in my qPCR study is MCL1 expression in the mRNA level actually is really important because MCL1 at a protein level is turned over every 30 minutes. You need to keep that mRNA pool there and viable, or else you're not going to be able to keep a viable amount of MCL1. And so what we saw was, hey, a lot of people have published studies looking at which microRNAs might target 3' ETR, but very few people have looked at what proteins are regulating that. And as multiple studies and multiple avenues have come up in looking at mRNA regulatory protein inhibitors and how they might go into the clinic, if these proteins are in any way impacting MCL1, we're probably going to need to know that, okay? So what we did is one of my students, um, she started out, and we did a quick search of the available ClipSeq for putative regulators of MCL1. And we scoured available ClipSeq data to see what proteins actually bound. And what we found is one of them uh, is PTBP1, and it had very strong signal in the 3' UTR of MCL1. And so if, what is the 3' UTR? 3' UTR is a portion of the mRNA, which really regulates stability, location, half-life. Um, it's where a lot of RNA binding proteins bind to the mRNA, or microRNAs bind to regulate this. So it's really the functional portion of the mRNA that regulates how is it going to become a protein. And so we did a quick rip to say, hey, is this ClipSeq actually valid in the cell lines? We did this in about five cell lines and saw consistently PTBP1 actually is binding to the 3' UTR of MCL1. So what is PTBP1? Um, PTBP1 is a master reg mRNA regulatory protein. It binds to about 60% of all mRNAs. It's involved in splice regulation, iris-mediated translation initiation, 3' end processing, mRNA stability, localization, and transportation. So it's, it's not a one-off protein. What's really interesting, though, is it's a central regulator of neuronal and hematopoietics uh, differentiation. There was a paper published three or four years ago in Cell that if you knock down PTBP1 in a, you take a fibroblast, uh, one of your own fibroblasts, you, and you want to make a neuron out of it, you don't need to make an IPS and then take it down a neuronal differentiation pathway. You can actually directly knock down PTBP1 and drive it down and make a neuron out of that fibroblast. So it's really involved in a lot of regulation of differentiation signals. And so what we wanted to see is what is PTBP1's, PTBP1's impact on MCL1. And what we thought at first was if PTBP1 when it binds, was going to bind to the 3' UTR and protect MCL1 mRNA. But what we saw is when we knocked down PTBP1, we actually got an increase, and a pretty dramatic increase, between two and three times the uh, protein level and a subsequent mRNA level of MCL1 was observed when we got rid of PTBP1. We were able to rescue that, so if we took knocked down PTBP1, we increased it. If we reintroduced PTBP1, we were able to rescue that effect. So it really was some type of a PTBP1-dependent effect, not a off-target effect of the siRNA. But we were left with the question, so PTBP1 is this master regulator. Is it really doing something to MCL1 mRNA, or is it actually making 
regulating some other protein that's going down and regulating MCL1 protein. And so we looked at mRNA, MCL1 mRNA stability. What we saw is when we knocked down PTBP1, you get a dramatic increase in the half-life of MCL1. And for all of these studies, we did them in five different cell lines, lung, breast, uh, lung, breast, prostate, which is shown, um, colon, and a renal cell line. Uh, and the paper has that data shown for the simplicity of the talk I just showed, the prostate model. Um, but what, if we look at protein level, you see no impact. Okay, so it's PTVP1 is regulating the half-life of MCL1, and we found a new function of PTVP1. That's really exciting, but why does this matter? Well, as my student was getting this data, what was coming out in the literature is, hey, if we make a PTVP1 inhibitor, maybe it'll have antitumorigenic impact. And there was a lot of focus on trying to make small molecule inhibitors of PTVP1 to try to t treat com uh, CNS uh, tumors, and a couple of other, um, I think, breast and lung cancers uh, with the idea that this could be a potential therapeutic target. And what I can tell you is if you're knocking down PTVP1 and you're increasing MCL1, you're probably not going to have a very good drug. So can we figure out why? Can we really position this? And the other thing is if you knock it down, this is going to increase sensitivity to antitubulin chemotherapeutics and... MCL1 inhibitors, which may be emerging. So is this also a mechanism we could think about suppressing as MCL1 inhibitors come out and maybe would work as an adjuvant therapy with those? And so we wanted to look at how PTBP1 actually impacted cell stress to establish chemotherapeutics. So we looked at the this prostate cancer cell line. So these are PC3 cells in the dish. And you treat it with a clinical amount of vincristin or docetaxel, and you see obvious signs of um, apoptosis being undergone. But when we knock down PTB in either of these, what you see is a rescue. So it's not just that knockdown of PTB is increasing MCL1 protein. It's actually having a protective effect, as we would expect, for seeing an increase in MCL1. We see that pro-survival effect. The question is, is it MCL independent? So we did some viability plots where we looked at combination of SIPTBP1 um, with SIMCL1s, or in this case with ABT737, and you see no real change. But then if we use our, the drug we made as a preliminary drug, Sabutaclax, which now targets MCL1, you see a complete loss of this protective effect that knockdown of PTBP1 induces. So it seems that the PTBP1 knockdown uh, uh, protect, protection that it enables is MCL1 dependent. Um, to really drive this home, so if MCL1 is being regulated by PTBP1 and this is protecting the cells, it should be protecting them in an apoptotic manner. So we did an XN5 PI staining. I want to really focus in on the center panel. So the top panel is no treatment, and then we do vincristin. This is docetaxel. We see that with an SI control, you get an increase from about 6 to 16% apoptosis. When you knock down PTBP1, you protect it by about 50% of that apoptosis-induced response, then when you co-knock down MCL1, you lose that protective effect. And to point to the, the necessity of understanding MCL1's biology, um, knockdown of MCL1 alone really doesn't do much. Okay? And so we really need to understand where MCL1 is positioned as we go forward if these compounds are going to successfully go into the clinic. So if we're looking at PTBP1, what is it actually regulating to induce this effect? Is it simply binding to MCL1 mRNA, dragging it out in the cytosol, or is there a specific interaction? So MCL1 tar is targeted by multiple microRNAs, at least putatively. Um, some of these have been well-validated. Most of them have not. Um, we looked through and thought, well, if PTBP1 is regulating microRNA axis, for a microRNA to really do anything, it has to recruit the risk complex. So the risk complex is a series of proteins, the most important being the argonaut protein, or AGO. And in humans, only one of the family members, AGO2, actually can cause mRNA gut degradation. And so the, three prime, or the microRNA binds to AGO2 and will actually be used to recruit that to an mRNA to degrade it. So we looked at, first off, is PTVP1 simply changing microRNA expression? So if, if all PTVP1 is doing is decreasing microRNA expression, maybe that would uh, 
lead to the effect we saw. But what we saw is when you knock down PTVP1, you get an increase in microRNAs, not a decrease. But what we did see is when you knock down PTBP1 and you look at an AGO2 ClipSeq, you get a pretty drastic decrease in AGO2 recruitment to three parts of the MCL13' ETR. And these correspond and are closely localized to three of the putative microRNA binding sites, MIR101, MIR153, and MIR125B. So we wanted to look and see, is this really happening? So the ClipSeq is great. I love ClipSeq, but it can be a little misleading. So the first thing we did is we did a knockdown of AGO2, and we looked at how that impacts MCL1. So it does, in fact, it is regulating MCL1. We did studies and looked at the other BCL2 family members. AGO2 actually doesn't impact most of the other anti-apoptotic family members, either looking at SI AGO or at ClipSeq. And so it's an MCL1-driven uh, uh, effect. And so we looked at does AGO2 and PTBP1 modulate MCL1 expression through one or separate um, pathways? And so what we did is a knockdown of PTBP1 and AGO2 or both of them together. So if they are on separate pathways, we would think that when we knock down PTBP1, we get about a doubling of MCL1. When we knock down AGO2, we get a doubling. If they're on different pathways, we should be able to see an even greater increase when we knock them both down together. But what we saw is when we knocked down AGO2 and SIPTVP1 together, we pretty much get the same increase in MCL1. And I'm sorry for the translation of these slides on the screen. It's a little hard to see. Um, this is where the co-knockdown is. That light gray does not show up very well. Sorry for that. <laughs> the error bar you can see. But what, we, what you can see here pretty well is you're not getting a subsequent increase in MCL1 expression. To maybe drive that point home better, what we could show is going back to the SAGO2 clip seek, if we knock down PTBP1, we actually decrease MCL1 immunoprecipitation, mRNA immunoprecipitation um, with AGO2. So we can actually decrease AGO, MCL1 loading onto AGO2 in a PTBP1-dependent manner. So we wanted to see which microRNA is regulated. So, Because um, mechanistically, is it just random association, or is there one of these microRNAs? And this really leads into this idea of, is one microRNA um, really driving a lot of this apoptosis regulation, or is it a collection of 5 or 10 or all 20? And so we looked at those three peaks, and what we found is that actually this AGO2 ClipSeq is about 200 um, nucleotides away from the MIR-125 site. This AGO2 ClipSeq line is, you know, I think it was 100 or 150 nucleotides. But this AGO2 ClipSeq site lines up perfectly with the MIR-101 seed sequence. And so what we looked at is, is PTB binding specifically to the MIR-101 site and regulating its ability to bind and sequester MCL1. And so we sh what we did here is we did a knockdown of PTBP1 in the absence or presence of MIR-101. And if you do an SI control, you see a dramatic reduction in MCL1. But when you knock down PTBP1 and you add an exogenous MIR-101, you see no effect on MCL1. So what this shows is that PTBP1 is directly blocking MIR-101 targeting of MCL1. And so what the, the, where this study stands thus far is what we've been able to show is that MCL1, and we went on and looked at how it regulates apoptosis, clonogenic survival. Most of the clonogenic survival and apoptotic, in fact, that MIR-101 has, and MIR-101 is generally accepted as this major apoptotic regulator, is MCL1-dependent. And we can suppress that simply by getting rid of PTBP1. So when you have PTBP1, it binds. It doesn't bind to AGO2. It binds to the 3' ETR of MCL1 and makes it so that MIR-101 can bring AGO2 to MCL1's mRNA. When you get rid of PTBP1, AGO2 can't bind there. We don't know that mechanism. We're actually right now in the process of trying to figure that out. That leads to an increase in MCL1 and a decrease in apoptosis. This has um, multiple... Uh, Imp this has multiple uh, ways that it can impact our understanding of biology, but the one that I'm most interested in is a number of 
glioblastomas and neuroblastomas um, arise due to lineage-specific uh, or uh, lineage, lineage differentiation problems. And so as you go from a neuronal precursor cell, which are PTVP1 high, one of the key uh, mechanisms that goes to development of neurons is actually loss of PTVP1. What we would expect is that then it's increasing MCL1. And as it goes down some of these other GVM or neuroblastoma lineages, they re-express PTVP1 and maintain a higher level of MCL1. So are they taking advantage of this as a method to either go through these non-desired uh, lineage specification pathways, or is it a mechanism alternatively so that when you try to treat GBMs or some of these other CNS tumors with um, chemotherapeutics, it provides an immediate uh, ability for them to induce resistance. And so we're in the process right now of working with a colleague where we're looking at treatment of GBM and neuroblastoma uh, patient-derived xenografts and looking at how MCL1 is used to facilitate their resistance from standard of care. And now, let me see. So I have about 15 minutes to get through this next section. So um, what I want to introduce you to is the other aspect that our lab has really been tackling, and that's novel MCL1 interactions that mediate communication with the cell cycle. So when I first started as a postdoc looking at MCL1 in the BCL2 family, we were looking at natural BHC3 selectivity. And this is why you have to think of the family as a sponge, because if you knock out, say, BCLXL or BCLXL and BCLW, or, BC, or the top three like you do with ABT737, you might get rid of bad signaling. But all the rest of these are panactive. So they're just going to flow over. There's going to be a rearrangement. That's kind of like musical chairs. And if there's enough chairs, nobody cares. It's only if the chairs go away. And the anti-apoptotic family members are the chairs that matter. Okay? What we really want is a drug that either, either targets MCL1 specific, specifically or BCL2 and MCL1. And so what we did is, like a lot of people, we did phagic display. So we wanted to figure out how to make an epitope um, that would actually bind MCL1 specifically. And phage display gave us the insight as to what sequence would bind. So this was being done. We did a phage display screen using BIM, the BH3-only peptide or protein that actually goes and in induces back and backs and regulates a lot of the anti-apoptotic family members. And like groups at Genentech and Novartis and, and, and MIT, we got BH3-like sequences. Um, they bound really well. They were really short, but it didn't matter. Because what is this telling us? Not a lot. But we had at our disposal a drug that actually targeted MCL1. Okay? And the problem with phage display is phage display can't find a peptide that binds better than your inhibitory compound. And that's because it, it relies on something being added in and displacing out a peptide. Well, the BH3s were binding like BH3, so they weren't going to find something that wasn't BH3. So Budaclax goes in and it binds right at the pocket, but it binds at the nucleating point for any peptide that binds in there. And what we found were two new sequences. And we called these RBH31 and RBH32. We called them RBH3s because they didn't align in an N to C orientation. You had to rotate them so that rather you wrote them in a C to N orientation. And then you had a perfect alignment of a conserved acidic residue, um, small uh, amino acid, and then a hydrophobic residue. And what was exciting about this was we got not just... Um, specificity for MCL1, we also had a whole new motif. Because when you, when you flip a helix around, an alpha helix, the side chains don't come out at a 90 degree angle. Let's go back to basic biochemistry. They actually come out at something of an angle the, between 30 and 45 degrees. And so when you rotate this alpha helix around, you're actually going to be intercalating into very different pockets of a protein. And it opens up different chemical space. And so what we saw is that our BH3 and our BH3 both had very nice MCL1 specificity, nanomolar or binding, BCLXL, no impact, BFL1, no binding, BCL2, minimal binding. 
So this would be great if we were just trying to do drug discovery, but I'm interested in biology. So is this motif real, or is it just a hypothetical construct? And what we did is I did a blast analysis of RBH3 motifs through the whole structured uh, genome. And what I found is that actually a number of proteins have RBH3 sequences native in their structure. And they're in alpha helical portions of the protein. So glucokinase and hexokinase both have an RBH3 or a putative RBH3 right in the core of their active site. Another protein, CDKN2C, has an RBH3 on its fifth onchron repeat. So what does this mean? So if this RBH3 binds like a BH3, that means those proteins should interact. And so my student um, spent some time and looked around and found a cell line where it had good CDK and 2C levels, it had good MCL1, and when you do a pull down of CDK and 2C, so CDK and 2C is a CDK4-6 inhibitor, it's involved in cell cycle regulation, and so CDK6 is its known natural epitope. And so you see that it pulls down CDK6 quite well. Here's CDK N2C pull down, and it also pulls down MCL1. And this is a purely endogenous pull down. Um, so I, I'm not going to lie. This was, Rob spent about a year trying to figure this out. It was the hardest endogenous co-IP ever. We had exogenous pull downs almost from day one. But trying to get a cell that, where we could see this was actually happening in the cell was very hard. And the reason is, and I'll, I'll get to in a second, has to do with the biology. So the proteins seem to interact. They interact in a cell. Where are they interacting? So the first thing we did was we used MCL1. So here we have MCL1 alone in red and uh, over top of it in blue. And I apologize. I don't know why these slides look so fuzzy. Um, I'm just going to jump to the point. So we're using NMR15 uh, and HSQC, where each of these peaks arises from one backbone amide. And so we can say this is residue 197 in MCL1, and this is residue 259. And those are the residues that are actually impacted by, by the addition of CDK and 2C protein into that sample. And if we look at the sequence analysis of that, you see that these regions where there's a large shift are where it's binding. It doesn't make much sense. But if you actually map it onto MCL1 structure, they all localize right around the BH3 pocket. Further, we could ask the question, is this biologically relevant? And so what we used is the same assay we've used for drug discovery in the BCL2 field, a FITSI-BAC FPA, where we look at the ability of a compound to displace back from MCL1. And this is all um, using uh, human MCL1. And what we see is CDK and 2C has about 100 nanomolar affinity for MCL1. CDK and 2C, a 21-mer peptide and a 17-mer peptide, which go right into that RBH3 region. We lose some of the affinity, but it's still in the micromolar range. And this compares to DMSO. So is this due to this onchron repeat? So CDK and 2C is unique amongst the, the CDK and, uh, inhib inhibitory family. So you probably seen more studies with P16, which only has four onchron repeats. CDK and 2C has this unique fifth onchron repeat. And what we found is that that's where the RBH3 is. And so if you look at full-length pull-down or onchron 4 or 5 alone, you can pull down MCL1. But if you cut that onchron repeat off, you actually abolish MCL1 binding. So this unique onchron repeat is actually giving it a unique biological uh, interaction. So MCL1 binds to CDK and 2C. Who cares? We've seen a lot of proteins that go back and bind to the anti-apoptotic BCL2 family. They go, you know, P P53, the DNA binding domain, goes to the mitochondria and induce, binds to BCLXL and induces death. But we could express CDK and 2C all we wanted in cells, and it didn't do a thing. It never induced any type of apoptosis. So what we did is we looked at what happens when we manipulate MCL1. And what we saw is when you overexpress MCL1, surprisingly, it gets rid of CDK and 2C. And this is why the co-IP really, really sucked. Because every time we had a lot of MCL1, the CDK and 2C in that cell line would disappear. If you got a lot of CDK and 2C, it was usually because the MCL1 in that cell line was very low. And we could actually plot a relation between those two. And so if you look at MCL1, 
it induces uh, the degradation of CDK and CC, and I can say that's in a non-proteasome uh, dependent manner, but it has no effect on the CDK and CC mRNA. If anything, when you look at CDK and CC expression and you overexpress MCL1, you get an increase in CDK and CC. So CDK and CC, it's a cell cycle regulator. Is MCL1 going back and actually doing something to the cell cycle? If it's degrading CDK and TC, we would think that it's a G1S, as a G1S block, it would actually be pushing it through the cell cycle. So we did um, PI staining, and what we saw is when we transfected MCL1 in two different cell lines, we saw differential effect, we saw decrease in cells in G1. They were getting pushed out of G1, and we saw them actually go into G2M. So previous studies have highlighted, oh, before I get into there, we wanted to see if this is MCL1 dependent, so we upregulated MCL1, and then we added A1210477 or S63485 to MCL1 targeted inhibitors into the cell, and we could block that progression through the cell cycle. Um, we wanted to see if, so if it's CDK and TC dependent and not some other uh, effect, it should be RB dependent. So we looked in the RB null cell line DE145. And so when we did the exact same upregulation of MCL1, we saw no impact on the cell cycle. And so we've done this in two different RB knockout cell lines, and in neither of them do we see any change in cell cycle progression. And we've done the growth now in five cell lines, and it's worked in each of those. So here, releasing the break. So other studies have talked about MCL1 being a protein that induces a G2M block. And we saw that, and so we were a little worried. Is this change, is this going from G1 to G2M simply that we've induced a G2M block? And while all they had published were similar figures to this, that doesn't actually tell you anything about what's going on with the cell cycle. It just says your cell is dispersed amongst different portions of the cell cycle. So we did cell trace violet to look at are we actually seeing an increase in cell division? And so here we use cell trace violet, so you add it to the cells, and every division, the amount of the cell trace violet's going to have. Okay, and so as you go forward, you're going to get more cells, and it's going to have less cell trace violet. So if we did flow analysis, what we see, oh, and this doesn't show up. Of course, this is in the light gray. Um, I, I really greatly apologize for this. So this was the uh, take-home slide. Um, <laughs> so this is the vehicle. SF268 gives a plot like this. When we add an MCL1, it goes over here. DE145, there, it's a light gray shade, and I'm happy to show anybody after the talk this slide. It fills this peak exactly in. So in an RB-dependent manner, you have either an increase in, in decrease of cell trace violet and increase of cells, or no change. We can also recapitulate that in just looking at basic cell growth. We see as differentiation, and then as we start to hit confluency, they come back together. Um, and so what we believe we have identified is that MCL1, as opposed to just being a regulator of apoptosis, is actually also going in and regulating other proteins. And so in this part, what we believe is that when you have free MCL1, that free MCL1 is able to go bind to CDK and 2C, and it'll tell the cell everything is okay. You can continue dividing. When you put an, M an MCL1 inhibitor, it will actually put on the break. It'll stop the cell from dividing, letting it know, it's, know that it is stressed. Um, and this makes a lot of sense if you talk about uh, computer models, because you're putting a lot of energy into making MCL1 over and over again. The current dogma is you put all that energy into making MCL1, you have all these stress responses that are trying to regulate MCL1, and the only feedback is the cell dies or nothing happens. That's a lot of energy to have no feed out. Um, most cells, and when we talk about biology, we talk about efficiency. What this seems to point to is actually MCL1 is going and saying everything's fine, continue growing, versus um, everything is, we're starting to have some problems, let's put the brakes on, let's see if we can fix something and not go through the cell cycle and actually run into problems 
and induce some type of chromosomal or other DNA stress. So MCL1 binds directly to CDK and 2C through its RBH3 motif. Um, that binding induces a proteasome-independent degradation of CDK and 2C, um, and that it regulates progression through the G1S checkpoint in an RB-dependent fashion. So um, I need to thank my lab members. So the first project on PTBP1 has been the work of uh, my first graduate, well, so I started out in the lab, and six months in, I got two excellent grad students. Gia took on the PTBP1 project and has been phenomenal. Rob took on the CDK and TC project. Um, I've subsequently added in uh, four excellent students, so Kirsten is taking over the PTBP1 project and actually following that through. Um, Haley is taking forward CDK and TC and other aspects of protein-protein interaction, and then Christine is an MSTP student I have who's actually looking at translating some of the um, MCL1 combination uh, ideas we have in a uh, clinical uh, investigator-initiated clinical trial. So um, I also want to thank the NMR facility, grant support, and thank you very much, Alan, for inviting me here to give this talk. I'm happy to answer any questions. Well, you said free MCL1 binding. Is it free? Is it still bound to mitochondria? MCL1 is not mitochondrial localized. It can be sometimes. It can sometimes. We believe this is happening in the nucleus. So um, there's, uh, we've seen and there's been published evidence that as you become a more differentiated cell, you have a less, slower proportion of MCL1 in the nucleus. Um, but in a, even in very well-differentiated cells, up to 20% of MCL1 is nuclearly localized. Um, we don't know exactly what part of MCL1 is doing all of this, but we do see that the CDK and TC interaction is occurring in the nucleus. Um, what is free? I don't know. That's the next, that's the next question is how... What is the localization of the BH3-only proteins? How do they impact MCL1 localization? Um, and how does that affect our model? So, Devin. Great talk, well, thank you. Um, so this goes back to your PTBP1 yes. uh, project. So you looked, looked at the mRNA level of MCL1 and how it's stabilized, but you right. still get this massive increase in MCL1 protein. Right. Now, it's assumed that it's free because you showed that it prevents apoptosis, whereas with A12 or other compounds, when they inhibit MCL1, you see this accumulation of MCL1 protein. Right. So what, uh, do you think there's other aspects in post-translational modification of MCL1 that are affecting its accumulation? Like, because the turnover rate is 30 minutes, but it seems like you're getting a lot more MCL1 as a um, stops you look at that. There are, in terms of, I mean, that's, that's a great question. Post-transcriptional regulation of MCL1, I mean, as you know, NOXA impacts that. Um, in terms of how that is being impacted, we haven't gone into that. That's, a, that's a, I think, a very important aspect for that project to go forward with. We, we didn't see a change in the MCL1 half-life when PTBP1 was knocked down. So we didn't see PTBP1 impacting those proteins that are regulating MCL1 protein half-life. We saw an increase in MCL1. So when I showed that plot, that was normalized to the zero time point amount of MCL1 protein. Okay, so, um, but in terms of what does that increase in MCL1 do? I, I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of questions that need to be looked at there. A lot of it's time dependent. So we know, for instance, that bortezomib causes an increase in MCL1 for 48 hours, and then MCL1 goes away. Um, I think that's actually the mechanism why when you do co-dosing of bortezomib in taxanes, you do a 24-hour delay um, in that combination therapy. I think it's entirely MCL1 dependent. Because uh, if you get rid of MCL1, bortezomib and docetaxel are synergistic. If you have MCL1, they're anti-synergistic. And so it took about 12 clinical trials for that dosing strategy to come to light. Um, but I think those are the type of mechanisms that we're hoping to utilize 
as a way of guiding us for other combination therapies. I have a question about your, your cell cycle progression. So you, um, the same treatment in the same direction will give you a G2 delay and cell cycle progression. We don't think we have a G2 delay. We think what happens is, so we're taking the PI staining, we're just taking a snapshot of where the cells are at that moment. So if we have pushed them through G1S, they're going to have to go somewhere. So we don't think it's a G2M delay. We just think that more of them are now are in G2M at that snapshot and at any snapshot. So um, we don't see any evidence of a G2M actual delay. But we do need to do those studies to actually do some of the timing. But um, that, that's our interpretation. Right. And that's what we think the cell trace violet is showing, is that they're actually dividing faster. Um, and if you have a cell that's dividing faster, you're going to have more in G2M. So is there an MCL1-regulated G1 checkpoint? It's an MCL1-regulating G1 checkpoint. We think that it is. And why do MCL1 inhibitors not do this? So MCL1 inhibitors, S1210477, S638, they don't cause this G1 checkpoint because they're strong enough to block MCL1 binding to CDK and 2C. So there's a window where if the inhibitors, like some of the early MCL1 inhibitors, have lower affinity, the RBH3 actually binds stronger. But as you use these targeted inhibitors, which have nanomolar or a better affinity for MCL1, they increase MCL1 levels, and that MCL1 isn't able to go and modulate the checkpoint because it's fully blocked. It's using the same pocket as the drug. So. When you see a change in G1 from 50 to 60%, is that biologically important? That, so that change in G1 that we saw, um, if we look at publication, the best that most of the papers we saw was a 10 to 20% change in G1. Well, maybe their work wasn't biologically relevant. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> their data wasn't biologically relevant either. Biological relevance, I mean, there are a lot more things. I don't, do I think that MCL1 is the sole regulator of the checkpoint? No, not at all. And that's, that's part of the confounding issue. Do I think that MCL1 is 100% binding to any of these proteins? No. I think that you're looking at a subpopulation. You have so much MCL1 going on in the cell and being turned over. You know, some of it's binding to back and back. Some of it's binding um, to the BH3 onlys. Some of it's going in and is being recruited in the mitochondrial matrix to assemble the ATP synthase. Um, some of it's bound to E3 ubiquitin ligases. It's not just doing one thing. If I had to guess, you know, in resting, we're seeing something like 5% interacting with CDK and 2C in this SF268. But in an acute system, that can be driven up. And so, um, that's, you know, that's the difficulty is that we're oftentimes thinking about acute response, but the standing steady state for most proteins is probably a very low amount of protein is doing something that's housekeeping, that's kind of maintained. It's only when you stress it, and then there should be a quick change. And I think, you know, we had a hard time doing this because in prostate cancer cell lines, they just didn't have enough CDK and 2C. And our MCL1 antibodies are horrible, and we tried to make some, but the best we could IP for MCL1 was about 5%. We could only pull about 5% of the MCL1 out of the cell. And so if we're thinking that something is binding to 10% or less, it's very hard to see that. That's interesting. When you first said MCL1 antibodies were bad, my immediate thought was, well, you already told us there's, no MC there's such low levels of MCL1 in the cell. It's not that the antibodies are bad, there's so little to see. No. You're saying your MCL1 antibodies aren't IPing MCL1? Mm -hmm. This is. This is been a, there was a study put out in 2011 that said that MCL1 antibodies have uh, a sensitivity about one one-thousandth or worse than BCL2 or BCLX. And so... Um, there's a lot more MCL1 than you can actually see. And if you ever do a lot of the microscopy, you know, MCL1's everywhere. Um, yes? Do you see the MCL1C again to see interaction as a negative feedback for mitogenic signaling, like MECURG, or is it the mitogenic signaling over We have not gone that deep into it. So this has been, a lot of it was just showing that it's real, trying to manipulate it. So we can manipulate it with MCL1 inhibitors. We've manipulated it with some peptides, targeting it. Um, 
We've been focused right now on trying to just understand what, what that interaction did. We spent a lot of time trying to see if the interaction was driving apoptosis. I, that, that was our first thought, was that this was just going to be another regulatory, apoptotic regulatory setup. Um, and then when that didn't happen, we, we, you know, we were trying to look at what it was actually doing the CDK and TC. So um, we're pretty excited we are, we are where we are. This is just cutting the edge of it. You know, we need to look at how that signaling goes forward. How does that impact other cell cycle checkpoint proteins? How does that in, impact? So um, CDK and TC is almost never mutated in cancers. CDK and 2A is mutated a lot, but if you do a comparison of CDK and 2A mutations or MCL1 overexpression, now suddenly you have a much larger pool. So it seems like maybe these are two complementary mechanisms to get through a G1S checkpoint. Uh, there's a lot of avenue to go forward with that. For that, we need to actually say this is happening, and that's what I—that's what the focus for the last few years has been. Um, so. Well, thanks for. I missed anybody. Thanks for a very interesting, stimulating talk. Thank you, guys. And if anyone wants to see that slide, I'm happy to show it. <laughs> <laughs>